he hurts a little, little bit here and a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit in the back. But then again, uh, it's normal. Now, I have a cup of water for you today. Those of you who remember Rekindle the Flame. Thursday night, Amanda and Dr. Eugene Thomas conduct our communion time. And uh, oh, what a wonderful time that communion turned out to be. We just, we just can't forget that. Every year we have communion on Thursday night and Dr. Eugene, Dunn preach, uh, uh, Eugene Thomas preaches. And so I, uh, on Thursdays I come on camera every Thursday and give you an update on how this old Brazilian boy is doing and share with you a little bit and then pass on the ball to Dr. Eugene Thomas. Eugene Thomas. Hey, hey. Well, good morning, everybody. Gosh, it's, it's good to be here and wake up in a beautiful day. We got snow here in Northern Virginia, and wind is blowing, but it's a sunny day, and we've had a string of bad weather, but today is much more pretty. I hope you are well. Hope you had a restful night. That, that, that's important. She got some rest, and that you want to study the Bible a little bit with me this morning as we are all students of this wonderful Word of God, and all we do is just sort of walk through it. I, I've been given a text that is is wonderful because of its location, its geographic location. I love the where the setting is for this text, and I wanted to just take a minute and speak to you about the geography of of St. Paul and share with you some of the beauty of it and some of the, let's breathe some of that Aegean air that comes in off the wonderful seas and the beautiful skies. There's probably very few places on earth more beautiful than Macedonia. And in our text today, Paul has traveled to the, across into the city of Thessalonica is the way we usually hear it spoken. Another way is Thessalonica. Uh, that's another way of pronouncing it. I usually use Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a seaport city where Paul, on his second missionary journey, went and spent time there. Um, it was a large city, one of the largest cities in Greece at the time. So he was, he went to the big town. He, he didn't he went right straight to the largest Jewish settlement there in Thessalonica and talked about the Lord there. Then he went from there to a little town about 50 miles sort of southwest of there called Beria. And Beria is a town that's much smaller than Thessalonica, but it was a place that he had some success and it's also in a wonderful place. You know, Macedonia is in the north of Greece. Athens, where Paul is headed in this second missionary journey, is to the south of this, but it comes down out of the mountains and goes across the fertile plains down to, again to the seacoast there where Athens is and the seaport of Piraeus is. I've had the privilege of traveling there, and I can tell you that the Greek people are wonderful people. They are very different from the Italians. You know, Rome took over Greece. 
just like they did the Holy Land. I mean, in, in 700 years, they just took over the whole known world, and Greece was a part of that at the time, and and the cities of Thessalonica and Barry, where we're going through today, were originally uh, Greek cities, but they're taken over by the Romans. So let me read a prayer to you that I have as we get started. I want to talk about the church today a little bit and how it was founded here. And so we'll have a prayer for the church. Let us pray. Gracious, loving God, we humbly beseech you for thy holy church. That thou would be pleased to fill it with all truth and all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, establish it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of him who died and rose again, and ever liveth to make intercession for us, Jesus Christ thy Son, our Lord. Amen. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they passed through Amphibiopolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is Christ. I will stop there and make some comments on these first three verses and then proceed on through the text today. Paul is accompanied by Silas. Paul and Silas are on this missionary journey. God has called Paul into Macedonia from Troas, or from what is now Turkey. At Thessalonica, he does what he generally does when he goes into a city. He goes straight to the synagogue now and, and begins to preach Jesus. This would seem, on first blush, to be an unwise thing to do. Because after all, his greatest opponents have often been the Jews. Or at least this is the way St. Luke sees it. If he did in fact wrote the book of Acts, and we can trust that he did, his description is not always favorable of the people in that synagogue. Because Paul reasons with these people now for three weeks. He's given the right to reason. Reasoning here means to set the table, to, to lay out everything that he's there for and what he's going to do. Now, I want to maintain through this text today to, uh, to give you an insight into the uh, aggressive nature of St. Paul. 
St. Paul is not a passive-aggressive person. He's full-on, straight in your face. This is the way it's going to be, and I want you to know that. No, no, no sweet little tune. No three points in a poem. It's right at you. He goes to the biggest religious leaders in town, in the synagogue, to the Jews first. Now, why does he do that? You ever think about that? Why in the world did he do that? Well, he wants the Jews to understand that he's not doing anything behind their back because his biggest converts are going to be Gentiles. Now, that's aggravating, in, in a sense. That's aggravating. Because if somebody comes to me and says, the biggest converts I'm going to get out of your community are going to be Methodists. Well, I'm going to say, well, good for you. Go at it. No, I'm going to think about that thing and say, well, why are you picking on the Methodists? See, This is what the Jews are, are, are feeling. Why are you picking on us? Because Paul is a Jew. He understands the relationship historically between Christ and the Jewish tradition. He knows that the whole Bible was written to maintain, put forth, and hold forth Christ Jesus. And he wants that on the table. He opens that and makes that allegation, the text says, that what? Well, it's a, it's a thing here called a kerygma. The kerygma is the statement flat out of who Jesus was, what Jesus did, and that's in the story. There's no embellishment. There's nothing. It's an announcement. The kerygma of Jesus is just like somebody would give you a, a newsletter or a piece of paper with it written on it. And it, it says that Christ had to suffer. He needed to suffer in order to fulfill his mission. And he had to rise again from the dead. And that this Jesus that I'm going to bring to this community and talk about here on these streets, this Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ that the Jewish faith is looking for. Now, period. Boom. You see how confrontational that is? It's like, it's like saying, okay, I'm here. Put them up. Put them up. Put, put them up. Because, you know, Jesus is, is, it's everything. And it's important that the world have an opportunity to accept him. Now, if you reject him, that's fine, but you could accept him. And they do. Some of the Jews, not all of them, maybe not many of them, says few. Let me, let me read on to the fourth verse. And some of them believed. This is the Jews now. Some of them believed. Not only believed, but and consorted with Paul and Silas and the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. Let me hold it right there at the fourth verse. He, some of them believed. Okay, it says believe. It's not the same word that has faith. They don't necessarily have a lot of faith, but they were persuaded. See, you know, the argument of Jesus is very persuasive. It, it doesn't, you, if, if you can, sometimes people just will intelligently accept the announcement. No big deal. No big thing. They just say, well, I'm persuaded. I've looked at the evidence. 
It's all real. Your allegations are true. And, and you know what, doggone it? Uh, I'm persuaded. I'm, I've been persuaded. I have not yet had, do not maybe have a faith as lively as John Wesley, but just the same, I am persuaded. And some of the Jews were that way. And it says, and, and of the devout Greeks, there were some, some Greeks that were devout, and they were accepted. And then this kicker on the end of it, and of the chief women, not a few. Okay. Now, in other words, of the chief women, and not a few. Quite a few of them, what he's, what he's saying. They could have been the wives of some of these uh, Jews in the synagogue. They could have been some of the chief women of the town, some of the chief Gentile businesswomen of the town. And there were some of them. You remember Lydia, businesswoman. They were persuaded. They were, and man, I tell you, if you get a woman into something, it's going to move around. They told me in seminary, they said, now, if you've got a committee and there's nothing going on, it's not doing anything, just put a couple of women on it and see, watch what happens. And I learned that through the years, that if you had a bunch of old men trying to do something, this was a mess. <laughs> they'd run over one another trying to keep it up. But you put a woman in it, and they'd have a plan, they'd have it worked out, and it'd be done. And that's why one of the reasons why Christianity was so successful. Yeah, see, uh, i never forget uh, Bobby Tyson told me one time that when in North Carolina that uh, – the definition of running a church is to, when you get to the church, is to try to determine who the bell cow is. A bell cow is that cow in a flock of cattle that when she goes to the barn at night, all the other cattle follow the bell cow. And they put a bell on her. And you can hear her coming in from the field. Ding, ling, 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 ling. And all behind her will be the other cows going in. And in every church, there's a bell cow. I don't like the description. I really don't. It's time to retire that. But nevertheless, it works. You, you work in that church, you figure out who the bell cow is, put a bell, put a bell on them, and you can get anything done you want. Just point that bell cow in the direction you want to go. If you want to get it moving, put a woman in it. At verse 5, but the Jews, which believe not, Move with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the base of sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and sought to bring them out to the people. Some were not persuaded. Okay, some some didn't agree. Some some felt like it wasn't true. So what did they do? They tried to figure out a way to put a stop to Paul and his his people. And so what they did was they got some of the worst people they could find to do bad things to them. And this is interesting because this was a tactic that was often used. They didn't do nothing. The Jews themselves didn't. But they'd go out and get some bum down the street that wasn't doing anything and incite them to go and be mean and work on them, beat up Paul and them. So what they did was they went after a, a person who was a host to Paul and Silas, they were living in his house, and it was, his name was Jason. Jason had put them up and was taking care of them hospitably. And so what they do, they got, they went there and they tore his house up. They burned his house down more. They didn't, they didn't burn it, but they, they, I don't know what they did, but they attacked his dwelling, his house. 
And it was just just a bad thing. Jason was nothing but a host, and these these Jews had a, a, a envy. They were envious. The Greek word is boiling, like a pot boiling over. They, they were just boiled in their own, in their own stewing in their own juice, stewing in their own juice. If you look at verse six, they 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 went into the house there to tear it up and all. When they found them not, verse eight. No, that's verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 6. When they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. So poor old Jason, he was aiding and abetting and this thing, and he didn't even really know it at the time, but just the same, he suffered. He appears later on in the text. At different places. He's one of those people that's just supportive. And verse 7. When Jason had received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Saying there is another king. One Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city. When they heard these things. So. This business of another king. That's important because. I believe Thessalonica was a free city. In Roman terms, if they got out of line, they could lose their status. And the quickest way to do it was to proclaim that you have another king rather than Caesar. That was really bad. That was a bad thing to do. And so this business of another king and calling him Jesus is 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 not just a religious problem, but a civil one. So they troubled in verse uh, 8 there, and they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. Verse 9, and when they had taken security of Jason, <coughs> that is to say, when they had gone his bail, they let them go. They got, he put up bail money and Jason, Jason put up the bail money for Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas got out of jail. He was, he was a good host. And then at verse 10, and the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night into Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. All right. So Paul left at night from Thessalonica, made that 40, 50 mile journey to the south to the town of Berea. Uh, what does he do when he gets to Berea? What's the first thing he do? He goes to the synagogue, and what does he do? Put him up. Put him up. I'm here. Here's another city, uh, okay? This ain't Thessalonica. Here's a left. Here's a right. Put him up. Put him up. And he goes forth, holds forth this, uh, once again, this aggressive sort of stylistic speech to people who he knows are not going to be necessarily receptive, but are going to hear his setting the table of reason out before them, and they're going to be given the opportunity to accept Jesus or reject Jesus. But whatever they do, they are notified. Paul has put them on notice that he's going to preach this Christ from their own scriptures and convert the Gentiles right in the, out from under them. Okay. At verse 11, at Varia though, at verse 11, these were more noble than those at Thessalonica, 
in that day receive the word with all readiness of mind and search the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So you see, a crowd can be a whole different thing in one town and it can be in another. So many of them in Beria were receptive. Just just receptive people. They picked up the phone and answered it when it rang. They went to the door when it was knocked on. <clears throat> they held forth with loving in their hearts to want to learn more. Now these are Jews too. See. Therefore many of them believed, says verse 12. Now here's the tail end of this here. And also of honorable women which were Greeks and of men, not a few. You get that? It's in, all of a sudden, something strange has happened in the world. Men and women are together in, in, in something of a religious nation. He, he makes note of that. He persuaded many. And we see again the importance of women in the church. But, at verse 13, when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Beria, they came thither also and stirred up the people. But doggone, if a delegation from Thessalonica didn't come that 40, 50 miles right down to Beria to make a, make a mess of things. They'll do it. They, they'll do it. If, 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 if possible, they'll run you down. And, once again, the confrontational nature of Paul, by its own necessity, appears there. So it's, it's not an easy game he's playing. It's tough, rough, hard. It stirred up the people, agitated. And but Paul keeps on making this announcement in his preaching that Jesus is Lord. At verse 14, and then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timothy abode there still. 15, and they conducted Paul, brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timothy for to come to him at war speed, and they departed for Athens. Well, there you have this little slice of the second missionary journey. And it is set in the context of Paul's aggressive nature. Now, why do I say that? I, I, I want to make sure you understand that I'm not saying he was just mean or, or a person full of conflict, but I will remind you the company he's in. See, if you look back in history, you're going to find that the great religious leaders were confrontational. And there's something to say to us. We live in a time when we think in our head that in order to be a good person, you've got to stay out of trouble and keep your head down and don't, don't, don't get into stuff that, that you might uh, hurt somebody's feelings or something like that. But here you've got the tradition of Martin Luther, for example. 
the Great Reformation. If you study anything about Martin Luther, you're going to find out that he was just a, as, he was very aggressive, particularly to Roman Catholics. I mean, he, he, he'd drink beer with the best of them and tell them how bad they were. You understand? He was a confrontational little man and he changed the world because he rediscovered this man, St. Paul. He rediscovered St. Paul's Romans talking about how Paul, how Jesus, faith in Jesus would save you. Martin Luther said, forget about the book of James. It's a straw gospel. He said, the book of James says, faith without works is dead. Luther said, give me the faith. You take the works. That's confrontational. How about John Wesley? You think he was a sweetheart? Short little thing, but he had an opportunity one time to preach in Oxford at St. Mary's College. What does he do? He goes in there and gets up in the pulpit and gets after all the professors of Oxford sitting in the church talking about how they, I don't know, but I, he was very confrontational. He went to a church one time to, to preach and the preacher said, you can't preach here. And John Wesley said, I, my dad is buried out there in the graveyard. I got that much property around here. He said, he stood up in the church and he told a lay leader, he said, hey, this afternoon at two o'clock, I'm going to stand on my daddy's grave and preach. And I'd like for you to come here. And he did. And then we just, I don't know how many people were there and that graveyard was full. And that old rector was just as mad about it, but nothing he could do about it. But John Wesley was confrontational. Well, there's a guy named George Fox, who I admire a lot of Quaker fella. And Quakers are very confrontational people. They, they don't believe in confrontation very much, but, but they are by nature confrontational. George Fox used to go in the churches in England and wear this big old hat with a big wide brim on it, the old Quaker hat. And he'd sit up there in the church with a hat on. And he'd come to him and say, Mr. Fox, please, you have to remove your hat. You're in church here. And he said, no, I wear my hat because I'm in church here. He said, there's a difference between you and me, and I want you to know it. And he'd wear that hat. Well, I don't know. You know any other aggressive Christians? There's a guy down in Georgia somewhere named Bonfim. You ever heard of him? Well, I have. He's very confrontational. A wonderful man, but uh, he wrote he wrote a book called Praying with Accuracy. It's very, 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 very aggressive style of evangelism, which I've found to be the most intriguing thing in the world. I'm not here to talk about that today, but I want you to know the Holy Spirit is by its nature, very confrontational, sweet, loving, kind, and good, but will worry you to death if you, if you make the wrong step because the Spirit of God is upon us and to help us, to cause us to grow. Now, I'm going to quit because I've been at this for a little while, but I want you to, to, to hear a prayer. As I conclude, I want you to know that I've enjoyed being with you today, walking through the countryside there and and looking at St. Paul. So hear this word of prayer. Almighty God, you created us in your own image. Let us not forget that. So grant us grace fearlessly to contend against evil. To make no peace with oppression. And that way we may reverently use our freedom. Help us to employ that freedom in the maintenance of justice among men and nations. 
to the glory of thy holy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you. Bye. To every generation, he gives the joy of his salvation. Oh, God's mercy so amazes me. As I watch the world around me, I can see his from the seed of Abraham and led them through the wilderness into the promised land and found his love and mercy he gave his only son who became